Hebrews 4, verse 14, and we're going to read up to Hebrews 5, verse 10. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. No one takes this honour on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, You are my son. Today I have become your father. And he says in another place, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Many of you will know that Hebrews uh, is a book which speaks about Jesus being better than all other things, being superior to everything else. So uh, he's superior to angels, he's superior to that great man in the Old Testament, Moses, He's superior to all of those shadows, all of those Old Testament shadows that pointed forward to Jesus himself. Of course, he fulfills all of them. So that is why he is greater than them all. And in this passage here, we see that he is greater than Aaron, the high priest, that that brother of Moses who was first appointed as the first high priest of the nation of Israel. Jesus is greater than he is. He, He is. Sorry. So let's see if this works um, and clicks on. It's not working at the moment, but uh, if the next, yeah, there we go, our great high priest. So that's the title of our sermon, our great high priest. And we see that, don't we, uh, that Jesus is our great high priest there in verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest, he says, we have. I don't know if you have come this morning realizing and knowing that you, if you're trusting in Jesus Christ, you do have a great high priest. And we have one. And the role of the high priest, we see in verse five, uh, chapter 5, verse 1, is to represent the people. That's what he's there, to represent God, uh, represent God to the people and to represent the people to God. That's the role of the high priest. And we all need a high priest this morning. Everybody here, whether you know it or not, you need a high priest to represent you to God. Now, that might sound a bit like a strange thought for some of you. I don't know what you, know, you, you imagine 
when you think about a high priest. You might you know, imagine all sorts of strange uh, clothing and behavior uh, from, from today's culture. Put all that away in a, to, to a certain degree. You do need a high priest. And Jesus is that high priest. You need a high priest because you are a sinner. Everybody here is a sinner. We have done wrong. We're guilty before God. And God is a holy God, burning with holiness and purity and perfection. And we will all meet him one day. We will all meet him. And so you need a high priest to represent you before such a holy God. And if you do not have Jesus Christ as your high priest, it is disaster for you on that day when he comes, because he will come. Um, I don't know how many of you remember back in 1986 when um, that nuclear power station reactor in Chernobyl, which is in Ukraine today, uh, obviously radiation is a very, very dangerous thing, and it leaked its radiation on a massive scale. Uh, and it was, a, it was a, an environmental disaster. It could have been a humanitarian disaster on a global level. But they managed eventually to seal it up. But even now today, all these years later, you simply can't walk into those buildings. If you ever enter some of those outer buildings, you will need protection. You will need special clothing to go in. As we said, God is a consuming fire. But his presence is wonderful. It's glorious to be in his presence. We want to enter his presence. And he wants you to be in his presence. But we need a representative if that is going to happen. We need a high priest. And we're learning afresh today that we have one. We have one. Jesus Christ. The righteous one. He is our high priest. If you're trusting in him, that's the case. If you're not, he can be for that great and awesome day, for the whole of your life and beyond. So Hebrews here that we're looking at is written to Jewish Christians. And they knew about the Old Testament priesthood of Aaron and his sons and how they came from the tribe of Levi. And they knew how they had been set apart by God to represent Israel to God and God to Israel. And these Jewish Christians as well, they also knew about the priesthood that was ongoing in Jerusalem and how sacrifices and offerings continued to be made there. And it seems that these Christians that the writer is writing to here, they were, they were thinking of going back to that old way of life that they had come out of. Maybe it was because of the persecution they were going through at that time. Or maybe it was just because it was so concrete and visible and, and kind of exteriorly impressive. But whatever the reason was, they were thinking of going back. But the writer of the Hebrews says very forcefully here, we have a high priest. He is like the high priests of the past and even of the present to a certain degree, but he is superior in every way. And the writer gives two kind of glimpses at how Jesus is superior to the high priests. 
past and present. Firstly, we're told in verse 14 that he has ascended into heaven. Or you could say, uh, passed through the heavens. A bit more accurately in the Greek. He's passed through the heavens. And there's meant to be a contrast between Jesus and high priests of the past. You might remember that the earthly high priests, they, they, they went into the temple and then they went through the curtain. They passed through the curtain into the most holy place where God's presence was. They did that once a year, temporarily, with blood. And yet it's nothing compared to Jesus Christ who has ascended. He's passed through the heavens. They understood the heavens to be a kind of curtain which separated earth from the presence of God. And Jesus passed through that out of sight with his own blood. As a sufficient offering. He's greater. He's superior. And of course... In verse 14, he's also identified as the Son of God. How much more superior is that than other priests? And we're meant to think back to Hebrews chapter 1, where he's gloriously introduced as the Son, who is the heir of all things. Everything is his. All that is God's is his. And he's the creator of all things. And he's the radiance of the Father. If we look at the sun, you can't look at the sun in its brightness on such a glorious day. Go outside. You can't gaze at the sun without losing your sight. But you can enjoy the warmth and the light, the radiance of the sun. And Jesus Christ is the radiance of the God you can't look at. He brings his warmth and light right to you. He's described as being the exact imprint of God's being. That conjures up the the idea of a, of a ring with a seal. And you really can't work out what the seal is depicting and showing. But then you push it into a clay tablet and you pull it away and you go, wow, that's the image. I see it so clearly. That's Jesus Christ. He brings the image of God, the reality of God, right into our world through him being a man, taking on flesh. And yet we're told that he's a sustainer of all things. This is our high priest. He has taken on flesh. Don't let that fool you. He has taken on flesh and entered our world, then to enter the very presence of God with human flesh. And he is there to represent us. To represent us, not for a day, not for a few moments behind the curtain, not for a week. Not for a year, not for a century, not for a millennium, forever, forever, for all who trust in him. So what else can we say about our high priest this morning? And the first thing that we want to say then under our headings is our, we want to recognize that he's our sympathetic high priest, our sympathetic high priest. And this is where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. Uh, we see that in verse 15, don't we? For we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel the sympathy, uh, unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses. So there he is. And, and did you notice there's a, there's a double negative there? <laughs> and the writer puts it in a double negative, really to make the positive even more positive. He's really underlining it. We do have a sympathetic 
high priest, one who is moved by our pains, one who enters into our sufferings. Yes, our high priest, he has passed through the curtain. You can't see Jesus Christ at this moment today. There is a physical distance between us, even though he has given us his spirit, which brings us very close. Physically, there is a spiritual distance between us. But because of his sympathy, there is no distance at all. Our concerns are on his heart. He brings them into the very throne room of God for us. So I try and illustrate that a little bit. And um, if you're a, a, a top musician, which I'm sure a few of you are here, you'll have to forgive if, if I don't get it quite right. But um, if you imagine with me a, a set of tuning forks uh, over here, uh, it, it, you're in the same room, so I'm in the same room with these tuning forks, and here they are. Maybe they represent the middle octave of a piano, and uh, maybe there's about 12 of them there, uh, all standing on their own. And over here I have one tuning fork. And I give it a good smack. I strike this tuning fork and it begins to vibrate and resonate. Now I am told that when that happens, the one tuning fork that is over here that matches the note, the the frequency, the pitch of this one tuning fork, it will vibrate even though you haven't touched it. Just one of them, the one that matches up, it will vibrate. It's called sympathetic resonance. It it vibrates in sympathy. Well, that's Jesus, our high priest, right now, in glory. He's our sympathetic high priest. He resonates with our troubles. He, He knows them and he feels them. He knows everybody's trouble here. He knows what you're going through. And it means something to it. He's moved by it. So yes, he has... Pass through the heavens, but he is moved by our sufferings and trials. He's moved by our weaknesses and our testings. And his physical distance doesn't diminish his sympathy towards us. In fact, it brings our pain right into heaven itself, right into the presence of God. So are you hurting this morning? You, you will do at some point. <laughs> And you will have done, most likely, if you're living in this broken world. Hurt follows us in different ways. When your pain is felt, it's felt. Now, yes, it is true that if all history was erased right now, we we don't exist anymore and we never did exist and all of history was erased as if it had never happened, God would not feel one moment of need. He is not dependent on us for anything. And yet, he is moved by our troubles and trials. Your pain is known. Your high priest sympathizes with you. His heart is towards you. And this is one reason why God's throne is described as a throne of grace. One that is transformed from a throne of judgment into a gracious embrace. Because our sympathetic high priest is there, as we were thinking about with the children's talk. He's there. 
But how did Jesus become a sympathetic high priest? Well, he's our tested high priest. That's how he became our high, um, sympathetic high priest. He's our tested high priest as well. And we see that, don't we, in verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel the sympathy of our witnesses, but we have one who has been tempted, tested, same word, been tempted and tested in every way, just as we are. So we begin to see how he can be sympathetic because he's been tested in exactly the same ways that we have been tested. Often we choose to highlight the next statement, uh, the next part of that statement, don't we? That he was without sin. And it's absolutely right that we should underline that. Jesus was without sin in his whole life. But we don't want to kind of miss the, in, the amazing truth that he was tested as we are in this life. In fact, that's the reason that is given here for why he is such a sympathetic high priest. That's what you see in verse 15. He's sympathetic because he was so tested, just like we are. So what's the pathway to sympathy then? That's our next point. What's the pathway to sympathy? And we see that outlined in verses four, uh, 1 through 4 of chapter 5. So in 4 through 16 of chapter 4, we've really had Jesus just presented to us as our great high priest. And in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 5, we we see how high priests came to be high priests. We see the calling of of, of Israel's high priests. And firstly, we see in verse 1 that they were selected. They were selected by God. Verse 4 gives a little bit more detail, doesn't it? No one takes this honor upon themselves. But he receives it when he is called by God. So the selection was by God. That's what happened with Aaron, the first high priest. He was specifically selected by God. And every high priest after him was selected according to genealogy. You had to be of the line of Aaron. God's choice. And notice in verse 1 that they had to be selected from among the people. So that they could be that representative that they needed to be. And then notice in verse 2 that they shared the weaknesses of the people. Verse 2, he is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. And that was important because that's how they had sympathy. Do you see that? They could, they could be sympathetic because they experienced that weakness. And that weakness, that was, a, that was a physical weakness. And it was a moral weakness. They, they shared completely the physical and moral weakness of the people. So you might remember on the Day of Atonement, that one great day in the calendar of Israel, where they had to come and confess all their sins that had not been covered by all the other sacrifices during the year. They were to come and confess them to God. And lay them on that goat. But before the high priest could ever make the sacrifice for the people, he had to make one for himself. He had to offer a bull. Because he was from the people. He was just like them. But it was through this that he could deal with them gently. Do you see that? He was able to deal gently with those 
who are ignorant and going astray. That's the characteristic. Now, that gentleness, it doesn't mean soft. It doesn't mean there was no discipline or holding people to difficult truths. It means the high priest was able to avoid harshness and indulgence. That's what this gentleness means. He was able to go the proper middle road. He was always proportionate, kindly proportionate with the people. That's what this gentleness means. So the key point is that these priests became sympathetic because they shared in the people's weaknesses. And because they experienced the same temptations as the people did, they were moved with compassion for the people when they struggled in their weaknesses and temptations. And we have our sympathetic high priest, Jesus. I I hope you're beginning to see a little bit more of who he is. It's so important to approaching the throne of grace. He was sent by God. He became one of us. He took on flesh so that he could represent us. Not only to save us, but to truly be a sympathetic high priest for us and to experience, to experience firsthand the trials that you and I experience. That's why he took on flesh. That's one of the reasons that he would know what temptation is like in the flesh. And the only difference between him and you and me is that he did not sin in the doing of that. And as we say, he did this so he could be a sympathetic high priest. And right now, in heaven, our suffering finds a sympathetic resonance. I hope you see that. Whatever you're going through, Jesus Christ knows about it. He has compassion towards you in it. He feels it. We can use that language. He knows. And he's moved with compassion. Don't doubt that. Don't doubt that in a cynical world. Let's look a bit more deeply at Jesus' pathway to sympathy, especially, this is our next point, his experience of weakness. His experience of weakness. Because we see that, don't we, in verse 7 of our passage. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. You see there, don't you, a a, a thumbnail picture of Jesus' life on earth. Prayers, pleadings, loud cries. You don't always see that in the Gospels, do you? But we're being told that that's what was going on. Tears. Life in the flesh is a great test for Jesus. And of course, no test really was greater than Gethsemane. In that garden, before his crucifixion, when Jesus knew what was ahead, what, what a meeting of, of divine will and human weakness happens in the garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus says, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. 
Yet not as I will, but as you will. Now there's not a clash of wills there in the garden. There's not a clash of wills between the Son and the Father. Jesus wants to do the Father's will. That's why he says, not yet not as I will, but as you will. He wants to do the Father's will. The deep test for Jesus is how his Father's will will be achieved. If it is possible, he says, may this cup be taken from me. Is there another way to do your will? And this is the voice of his humanity. These are the words of the Son of God in human flesh and weakness. This is a momentary standoff that causes deep anguish and sorrow. Jesus cries out. His sweat is like drops of blood. He prays. And yet he submits to the Father's will. And he is heard. He is saved from death. Not the cross, not death on the cross, but from sin and death. Jesus triumphs in the garden. He overcomes temptation so that he might be our saviour and our great high priest. So along with the cross, Gethsemane is the climax of Jesus' life lived in human weakness and divine submission. But we shouldn't think that Gethsemane is the only thing in view in verse 7. Certainly when you read verse 7, that's what it kind of maybe puts into your mind straight away is Gethsemane, but we shouldn't limit it to Gethsemane. That, that thumbnail sketch of Jesus isn't just Gethsemane. It starts off, doesn't it, verse 7, with during the days of Jesus' life or during the days of his flesh in the Greek. During the days of his flesh. And the, using the word flesh emphasizes his human weakness. During the days of his human weakness. He cried out like this. Verse 8 says, The son, uh, uh, though the son though he was, he learned obedience. Again, that's not a, that's not a momentary thing. It, it didn't just happen once. He had to learn obedience throughout his whole life in the flesh. When it says he learned obedience, that doesn't mean he progressed from disobedience to obedience. It means he, in a way, he moved from the, the theory of obedience to the practice and the, and the experience of obedience. So you could imagine a, in, in a war room, imagine a war room of officers thinking through the battle plan. And everyone agrees the battle plan. There's, there's obedience from the junior officers and whatever. There's obedience for the battle plan. But then they have to go out and live it on the battlefield. And that's, that's the experience of obedience. That's learning obedience. That's carrying it out. And the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in eternity past, the Father and Son agreed the plan of salvation for people like me and you. And Jesus agreed it. The Son agreed it 100%. And now he's learning that obedience because he took on flesh to make it happen. And we get glimpses of him learning that obedience all through his life. You might think back to that glimpse that Luke gives us in chapter 2 where Jesus is in the Jerusalem temple and then he's going to return to Nazareth with his mother and father 
at 12 years old and were told that he was obedient to them. He went back and he was obedient. Do you think that obedience at times didn't include tears and crying out to his father as he grew up that he might be saved from death? Remember, one sin from Jesus Christ shipwrecks salvation for us all. Of course, we're dealing with impossibilities, aren't we? That the Son of God can sin. And yet we need to know that it's a real choice that is before Jesus Christ. And he cries out. And he's heard. Yes, we've got the, the big pictures, the big, the big kind of examples of his submission with the wilderness. But we also get those little kind of glimpses of everyday life. I don't know if you remember when he, after he'd been transfigured on the, on the mountain and he came down and, and a man who had a possessed son came to him and he said, your disciples couldn't cast out the demon. And Jesus says, you unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? This is... This is God in the flesh rubbing shoulders with you and me in our broken lives every single day. Do you know how, what a challenge that is? What a testing that is to remain perfect. To respond perfectly to each one of us all the time. For our sakes. He knows what it's like. He knows what it's like. And in all these situations, Jesus knew the will of his father, better than you or I ever do. We, we, we understand God's will and we, we get glimpses of God's will and we know sometimes exactly what God wants us to do. But we never see God's will in its purity and its fullness like Jesus Christ knew it, the Son of God. He saw it in such clarity and depth. Listen to James chapter 4, verse 17. It says, If anyone knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. (laughs) Can you see how higher the stakes were for Jesus Christ, (laughs) who knew the will of God so thoroughly? And he was called, he loved the will of God, he loved it. But do you see what degrees he had to go to, to keep it? What an experience of submission and learning obedience. What a path of self-denial and suffering for Jesus. And it took him to Gethsemane. And it took him to the cross. And on that cross, he was made perfect, we're told in verse 9. And once made perfect. Not moved from imperfection to perfection, that's not what it's saying. But he finished the course. He completed his work. He became forever our qualified high priest. He finished the work that had been given to him. It couldn't be added to and it couldn't be subtracted from. It was perfect. You might remember on the cross, Jesus says, it is finished. That's the same Greek word we have here when it says, once made perfect. They they share the same root. Completion. Done. Forever. That, 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 That means his offering. His offering of himself. 
is totally complete, as is his high priestly status. He is now qualified completely to represent you and me forever before the Father as our glorious representative and high priest. So during his 33 years of life, Jesus knitted together a perfect robe, you could say, a perfect item of clothing, a perfect garment of righteousness, of perfection, of a life lived without sin. He knitted that robe together and he freely credits it to all who take him as high priest. So that offers here today, this morning. You can put your trust in him. You can say, I need such a person before a holy God and he will give you his righteousness and he will take from you your dirty, rotten life and he'll pay for it on the cross of Calvary. On that cross. You might remember in the early hours of the morning, maybe, before Jesus was crucified, he was brought before the, uh, the, the, the Jewish court, the Sanhedrin, to be, to, to be charged. <laughs> and in that courtroom, Caiaphas, the high priest at this time, he tears his robe. He tears his clothes, something the high priest should never do. <laughs> he shows himself to be unfit to be the high priest. And yet as Jesus hangs naked on the cross, his perfect robe, the one that was stitched together, one complete item, it lies at the foot of the cross. And the soldiers, gambling for it, won't tear it. (laughs) Why? Why? He's God's appointed high priest. He's the one that you and I need. Is he yours this morning? Is he yours? Is Jesus Christ your high priest? Are you secure in him? Or would you be so foolish to stand before a burning holy God on your own? Well, briefly, what's our response? What's our response to this? Well, our first response is that we should approach with confidence. Approach with confidence. If we can click on the slides to that, that would be great. Approach with confidence. We see that in verse 16. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. How do we approach that throne of grace? Well, as we were hearing again this morning in the children's talk, it's through prayer. That's how you approach. And you approach with confidence, not in you, but in the high priest that we've been looking at. You approach in prayer with confidence because of him. And there's two wonderful things you can expect when you do that. You can expect mercy and you can expect grace. And we can think about those two words covering the whole of our life. Mercy. Whenever we come to that throne of grace, we need mercy for our past sin, for our behaviour of that day, of that morning, of that week, of our whole life. But there is mercy. There is forgiveness for everything that has gone up until that point. There is mercy. You can come with confidence. You will find mercy. And there is also grace. 
And that kind of looks forward. There's, there's grace to help you in whatever is happening in that present. Whatever is going to happen in the future, there is grace to help in your time of need. What an incentive. So approach with confidence. I don't know what your prayer life is like. I don't know. But it's hard working on your prayer life. It's a joy and it is difficult at the same time. May this help you. We should be people who love to come to God in prayer. It shouldn't get pushed out. There is such an incentive to come. Approach with confidence. Secondly, imitate with love. Imitate. Jesus is an example for us as a high priest. That's what he came to be, not just a saviour, but an example. So in 1 Peter chapter 2, we read, Christ suffered for us, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. We're told in Revelation that we've been made a kingdom and priests. Every single Christian is, is a priest, a mini priest in that level, in that way. We've been, we've been endowed and given that, that responsibility and that privilege. So let us have sympathetic resonance with one another. Let's, let's have that. When one member of the body hurts, may another part also hurt with them. May there be that sympathetic resonance. Let's seek to feel one another's pain, not just understand it intellectually, but let's really seek to spend time understanding and feeling what they're going through. And let us deal gently with each other. When someone sins against you, be kind and proportionate because you share their weaknesses. Serve one another in these ways. Let, let it permeate the way that you interact. And finally, learn obedience. Learn obedience. That's a, that's a real... Uh, that's, that's something that we're, the, the writer wants us to take away from this passage. So in verse 9 it says, And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who... And what do we expect in a way for it to be said there? Salvation for all who... And we expect it to say, believe. <laughs> for all who have faith, that's what we expect. And that's absolutely true. Salvation comes through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. But he wants to emphasize that you can't separate obedience from your salvation. If you've been adopted as a child, you've been adopted to be like Jesus Christ, to grow in Christ's likeness. And so obedience is a mark of salvation. And we are called to learn obedience, just like our Saviour. It's an experience. It's painful. We're told in verse 8, Jesus suffered because of obedience. There's, there's no other way to obey except to suffer in obeying. And how do we learn to obey? By submission, verse 7. By submission to the will of the Father, to love the Father's will over your own will. And there will be countless times in our lives where we are going to confront that choice, 
where our human nature has a, has a desire and a will, but we also hear the will of the Father. And are we going to be people that learn obedience and actually learn to submit to the Father's will? It's a good way to go. It has wonderful blessings to it. It's the way that we're made perfect, that we grow in sanctification. And we're also told in verse 7 that it's the way our prayers are heard. <laughs> he was heard because of his reverent submission. So I wonder, do we begin each day, each day, recognizing that there might be challenges in that day? There might be a choice about whose will we obey. And are we, are we prepared and ready to learn obedience? You know, living, uh, we live in a culture that doesn't like to suffer and doesn't like to submit. A culture that wants its own way. But that's not what the church is called to. We're called to learn obedience, to submit to our Father's will. Jesus has shown us it is a better way with glorious outcomes. So let us confidently approach our God in prayer and find the need, uh, help we need for this life. Amen.